Let's get rolling. Good morning and welcome to The Critical Social Worker. My name is Christian A. Stetler and I am a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning I'm broadcasting live from Auk Bay in Juneau, Alaska, down in the southeast by the, on the panhandle. And I'm joined by my co-host Lee Smith. She's having um, video problems, but uh, she's here on audio and hopefully we'll get her video uh, sometime throughout the uh, the episode. So she's operating up north in the Arctic in Fairbanks. How's it, Lee? Uh, it's going. Good morning, Christian. Yes, again, sorry for these technical difficulties, but things are well. The Festival of Native Arts is going on this weekend at the university, so looking forward to that this afternoon. Right on. Well, we hope we get to see your face at some point. Um, all right, well, we got a really uh, great show planned for you this morning, um, or maybe it's an afternoon for you either way should be a great show, so make sure you stay, stay tuned in. I've got my uh, good friend and brother, MT, who I just see popped in. He's a spiritualist and healing artist based in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he's here to join us for some good dialogue and storytelling. But uh, before we get to that, there's a few things that we want to cover. Yes, real quick. So this project, The Critical Social Worker, is supported by the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska. However, we do want to make it clear that opinions expressed on this podcast by the host, guest, listeners, um, that they do not necessarily reflect the values of the social work department, the College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, or any of its affiliates. Um, so with that, the opinions uh, expressed share to the speaker alone. All right. Thank you, Leanne. To add to that, we should maybe talk just a little bit about the organization of the project and how it all goes down. Um, the podcast originates out of the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. Uh, I imagine the podcast as a venue to engage in critical dialogue, facilitate critical storytelling, and create revolutionary change in ourselves and in the world. And although I'm the director of the project, and you'll see me as the host and coordinator on many of the episodes, you'll also see student involvement. And a great example of that is my co-host, Lee. She's a senior practicum student within our program. And for those that are not familiar with social work education, in order to earn a BSW or a bachelor's degree in social work, students must complete a practicum internship during their senior year. Basically, students have the opportunity to practice social work in the field with supervision throughout the course of their entire senior year. So we feel like we're very fortunate to have Lee here on the podcast with us every week helping out. Um, and actually, if you stick around for a few more episodes, you'll see Lee taking over the mic and hosting a show, at least one, maybe more. Uh, but uh, stick around for a few more. Hello.
Brother, I don't believe we can hear you. And how long have I been out? Uh, like a minute, maybe and a half, minute and a half. All right. Where was I at? You had just mentioned doing practicum stuff. All right. Well, yeah. So senior year, students do a practicum. That's what Lee's doing. We're blessed to have her as a part of the team. Um, if anybody... If uh, any other students or anybody else would like to be involved in the podcast as far anywhere from um, just hanging out, learning, learning more about it, seeing where you fit in to audio production, video production, social media outreach, all of that. Um, please reach out to me at castetler at alaska.edu and I'll put that email address in the chat. Please reach out to me if you're interested. All right. And with that being said, Lee, you mind uh, sharing our mission statement? You betcha. Okay. The Critical Social Worker Podcast is dedicated to promoting critical dialogue within the social work profession while valuing the multidimensional person. We recognize that every person has a unique story and a set of experiences, and we strive to use our platform to unfold these stories and share diverse perspectives. Our aim is to produce a safe and inclusive space for individuals from all backgrounds to share their stories and ideas, fostering empathy and understanding among our audience. Through storytelling, we hope to promote the values of social work and encourage a sense of community. By engaging in these dialogues and sharing stories, we believe we can produce critical consciousness and a heightened awareness of ourselves, the world, and the power structures that shape it. In essence, our lofty goals include changing ourselves, the world, and one story at a time. All right. And one of the underlying uh, themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of of telling stories. We here at the Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences, uh, and we want to help unfold some of those layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness. Yes, and while we're talking about learning and growing, we should do a quick shout out uh, to the UAF Social Work Department. Um, The program offers a highly ranked bachelor's level program, so BSW. Um, And it's offered fully online, so you could literally live in Australia and still complete this program. Uh, Tuition is affordable, so that's always a plus. Uh, But for me, what I feel honestly makes this program so special um, are the professors and the staff that that run the show, honestly. They have such a wide variety of expertise and knowledge, uh, create a real sense of community, and just super supportive of their students. So thank you, Christian, and the rest of the UAF Social Work Department for making this program what it is. Um, if anybody would like more information about the BSW program at UAF, check out their website, uaf.edu forward slash S-O-C-W-O-R-K, um, or just reach out to Christian and I. Yeah, right on. And can you put that in the chat, Lee, for them? Yeah, sure can. Appreciate it. Uh, and what about, do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on as a, on the show for an episode as a guest? Well, if you do, if you've got a story to tell and you want to come on, then please hit me up. You have my email address. It's in the chat, castetler at alaska.edu. And with that, I think we ought to get these, this uh, episode officially started.
All right, all right. Well, welcome to the second episode of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. I'm your host, Christian, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee, and our guest for this episode is my good friend and brother, MT. Now, MT is not a social worker by the traditional sense. He doesn't have a license or a degree in the field. However, I think one of the many, or excuse me, not one of the many, but one of the flaws of social work sometimes is that we sometimes just consider social work as something someone does in the role of a BSW, MSW, caseworker, therapist, or, you know, with a degree in social work. Um, but is that the only way that you could practice social work or be a social worker? Uh, maybe it's the critical social worker in me, but I feel like this question deserves a closer look. Now, the Oxford Dictionary uh, definition of social work is a person whose job it is to help people in a particular area who have, a so who have social disadvantages or personal problems. And that definition certainly opens the door. You don't need a college degree in social work, um, although it would most certainly help, but you don't need a degree in social work to help people in a particular area who have some sort of social disadvantage or personal problems. Uh, but that's the definition of social worker. But what about the definition of social work? Well, the Oxford Dictionary says it is, quote, work carried out by trained professionals with the aim of helping people who have social disadvantages or personal problems. The difference here is that the definition of social worker is more general while social work adds the descriptive trained professionals to the mix. Well, obviously a BSW or an MSW or both would qualify as a trained professional. But my question is whether or not someone can be a social worker or practice social work without a degree in social work. For example, long before I ever went back to college, I worked uh, with youth, um, eventually supervising a, a juvenile treatment facility. Um, and uh, I continued to work in the field while I was earning my degree. So did I only become a social worker after I earned the degree or was I not practicing social work before I graduated? Uh, when I was running groups with these troubled youth, de-escalating them, talking, through their, talking them through their problems, what was I doing if it wasn't social work? Well, in my mind, I was practicing, practic excuse me, I was practicing social work way back then, uh, but through my education, I was able to learn how to become a better social worker um, through those educational experiences. Now, there's no right or wrong answer to these questions, and largely, it depends on our perspective and context. And I mean, really, we don't necessarily even need to use the Oxford Dictionary to define uh, what social work or a social worker is. It helps us, obviously, but there's many different elements at play other than how Oxford defines something. Maybe it's something that we should define ourselves. So my question, some of the questions I have for you is how do you define social work? How would you define um, a social worker? Yeah, I if like there, these questions. Oh, sorry, go ahead. If there is, how is that definition determined? Does the uh, NASW control the semantics, the university or academia, or is it that, or is it you that defines it, or maybe us together collectively? Now, this is all mostly just food for thought, things to think and reflect about, because from my perspective, part of being a good social worker is about thinking and reflecting about things. So let us think and reflect about our guest, Jerome M.T., for a minute. MT doesn't have a degree in social work. He doesn't uh, work for a social work agency. He's got no social work licensure or accreditation. Yet I can't help but think of him as a social worker. He is most definitely doing work that is social. He helps people that are experiencing issues and problems. And as an extension of this, that will hopefully manifest in the forthcoming dialogue and storytelling. Is the idea and simple fact is the truth being that MT first helped himself and actively still does help himself. And I think if I had to define social work in a sentence, it would be this. 
Someone who is deliberately and actively trying to help others, especially those at a disadvantage. Well, I want to wrap up these thoughts before I ramble too long and see if I could tie this all together as I introduce MT and turn over the mic for a little bit. And this is how I see it. The term social work is most commonly associated with the profession of social work, which is a formalized and regulated field that practices and requires specialized training, education, and licensure. And I think it's important to note that the professionalization of social work has led to the development of specific knowledge, skills, and ethical standards that are crucial to effective social work practice. So while social work activities can be carried out by individuals outside of, a formal of the formal profession, social workers undergo specialized training to provide the highest quality of service and to adhere to ethical guidelines. And hopefully we're preparing students to do that here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. But like I said, however, it is possible for individuals to engage in social work and activities outside of the formal profession. Social work should be defined by its focus on addressing social problems and promoting social change, often through direct service to individuals, families, and communities. Anybody who engages in activities that seek to address social problems and promote social change, regardless of whether or not they're formally trained or licensed as a social worker, could be said to be engaging in social work. For example, what about a community activist who organizes a neighborhood potluck and a talking circle, or a spiritual leader who provides counseling or a volunteer who works at a food bank, uh, they could all be seen as engaging in social work, even if they're not formally recognized as social workers. So I have an assignment for those of you that are tuning in to the show, um, a question for you to ponder and reflect upon. Uh, and it's just, it's just a casual question. Um, we're not look, looking for a definitive answer. Uh, I just want to know what you think. So as we go through this, this uh, interview, this dialogue, I want to know, do you think MT is a social worker? Does he practice social work? Let us know what you think. Thanks, Christian. Those are some interesting questions. I've seen a lot of conversations um, around this topic. So, yeah, if you're listening right now, go ahead and share your thoughts in the chat on maybe how you define social work or what makes somebody a social worker. Um, we'd love to see your thoughts. And don't be shy. There's no wrong answers. All right. Well, that brings us to our very special guest, my good friend, Jerome M.T., an unofficial social worker, at least for this episode. MT, how are you? Good brother. I'm doing well. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always a blessing to talk to you and to share thoughts and conscious conversation with you. And thank you for having me on the program and on this topic specifically. I really, I'm just excited to talk about this. Yeah, it was a, it's definitely a pleasure to have you. Uh, we feel like it's a blessing to have you on the episode. I got a quick question for you. You got to tell me. I got to know. Just the other day, my friend, Mr. Sun, the Sun, came by to Southeast Alaska, and he was here for like two days, and it was beautiful. I'm not saying it's not beautiful now with the snow and stuff. It's, it is beautiful. But um, I heard that uh, he went back to Hawaii, and I was just wondering, have you seen him, and do you know when he might be back? Man, he just came out. No lie. It was all nice and cloudy and a little bit cool this morning, and the Sun came out. Just now, like maybe 20 minutes ago, is peering through the clouds. It's really nice. It's lovely. Um, yeah, we've been having a little bit of rain and a little bit of cloud cover more than what we used to. And it really is a, a breath of air to have the sun out so powerful and bright. Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah. Welcome yeah. to sun. What a beautiful thing to have, right? This beautiful energy. Yeah. Like, gives us all light and life and fuel to, to do all the things that we want to do. 
for sure. And, uh, you know, it's interesting the different perspectives one might have, because, you know, when I first had moved to Hawaii, it was super hot. And I remember walking to up to the university one day, my backpack on, just almost dripping wet from sweat. It was just, it was so hot. And then called a Hawaiian blessing when the um, clouds come over real quick and it provides you with a nice little mist and it blows on you and it cools you down. Here, it's the opposite. You know, you're hoping that the sun comes out and peeks out from the clouds. So it's just interesting what we look for, depending on where we're at in our environment. Um, well, all right, let me introduce you a little bit. I first became aware of MT's presence on when I was living on the island of Oahu while out walking near Waikiki one night with my family. When the pandemic hit in 2020, they shut down everything on Oahu. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Like it was against the law to go outside and stand in a park, stand outside by yourself. Uh, then they changed the law to where you could go to the park, but only if you're by yourself, which I got to say, when you're home alone, a father at home alone with three kids tagging along, it doesn't help. And I mean, they were pressing on it. I had police stop me for changing a diaper in the park. So, I mean, they were on it. Um, but the one thing they couldn't outlaw uh, due to longstanding precedent and law was the ocean. You're allowed to traverse the park to get to the ocean. Well, the pandemic kind of created this... Uh, this pattern from my family, because when given the choice between a hot apartment with three kids and the ocean, well, we obviously chose to go to the ocean. Um, so we created this routine. We went to our favorite beach, Kaimana. It was just outside of Waikiki. If you're familiar with it, it's over there by the Waikiki Shell, the auditorium, uh, the, the war memorial, if you've ever been there in the area. And anyways, we go there like once, twice a day. And we continued that after the shutdown was lifted. Um, like, literally, I'm serious. We spent all our time over there. And one night, just after the shutdown was lifted, we were swimming over at Kaimana, and it got dark, and so we were walking back. And there's this shady side of the parking lot, like, over on the other side of the War Memorial. And I don't mean shady, like, from palm trees. I mean, it's kind of, like, just shady and dark over there um, off to the side. And uh, we look over there, and there's music going, and there's this group of people that are just dancing, uh, you know, joy joyously, joyfully with each other. And I was... I thought to myself, like, what are these guys doing? What business do they have dancing joyously over here in this shady parking lot over here in the backside of this, you know? You got this whole park over here and everything, and you're over here in the shady parking lot dancing. Why are you guys so happy? Well, my kids wanted to watch, so we hung around a bit and watched. And uh, we see them there, like, every night. And like I said, they were dancing with joy and purpose, you know, is what it looked like to me from the outside. And so eventually, uh, Alicia, my wife, and I, we agreed that we got to get to know this guy. And so... Uh, through a series of events, you know, we were able to connect. And fortunately for us, we developed a good friendship, relationship, brotherhood, ohana, uh, meaning extended family. Uh, we've worked together on several projects previously, both on the live radio and podcasting, not to mention many critical reasoning sessions. I'd have to say it was a very fortuitous and fruitful meeting. Um, and like I always say, if you're looking for a formal introduction, you can't look for it on this podcast. I like to, to do things a little differently. So MT has plenty of accomplishments and titles um that i could offer up but i think mt is much more of a multifaceted character a man with many different experiences that has shaped him into who he is and who he's becoming and i thought mt that we might just want to start with your name and people might be wondering about that jerome mt um, and why i refer to you as mt uh, and mostly i do that because that's how you introduce yourself to me and so that's how i know you but uh but just by the way your name sounds mt empty and uh you know Throwing a little bit of uh, outside knowledge in here is the Rastafarians. If any of you ever listened to reggae music or, you know, Bob Marley, you might hear him like have altered some of the words. And so they use they call it dread talk. And they believed that the English language was oppressive for them. 
And so they believe words should sound like they mean. For example, uh, you know, it wouldn't be an oppressor because that has a positive sounding up. It would, instead, it would be the downpressor, downpressing people. You don't dedicate something because it sounds like dead, negative. You livicate it. You don't understand something. You overstand it. And so with that, MT, I want to livicate this next segment of the podcast to your introduction for you to tell us the story, the story of your name and the story of you. Please, MT, help us overstand the meaning behind your name. Tell us the story. Who are you? Uh, first of all, thank you, brother. Like That is just a fantastic, informal introduction. I, I really appreciate it. And you are so kind. And, and thank you for like just allowing me into your family and into your circle. It really is an honor to know you as a man, just a man of integrity. So I just appreciate you. Um, yeah, you definitely hit the, the, the nail on the head with the meaning behind empty. It, it does mean to be empty. Um, when I was uh, growing up, I grew up, you know, in church. I grew up as a, a preacher's kid. My dad was a bishop. My mother was an elder. I ended up being an ordained minister by the time I was 12 years old, preaching, singing, playing music all around the world, starting like seven churches with my family up until I was about 17 years old. And I left because, you know, like many of us, we have a, a relationship with organized religion that's personal. And when we have these personal uh, disconnects happen, we tend to leave that organization or that group, that structure, you know? And so I did that as a young man. I left early, went into the military, had some further experiences. And, you know, just the conditioning of our society, there was a lot of limitations that were put on me as a person by, you know, my skin color, what I did for a living, what, you know, where I was living, all these different things. And, by the time I got out of the military at, I think I was like 26, 27 years old, um, my parents had divorced. I had gone through my second divorce. Getting out of the military was, you know, trying to recoup from adapting and adopting some bad habits in the military, things that just weren't good for my well-being. And I really was, you know, just trying to reformulate who I was as a person and re-identify. And... Um, my parents' separation made me, like, look at my relationship to both sides of my family. My father's last name is Mester. My mother's last name is Trevino. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to use both. And for quite some time, I went by Jerome Mester Trevino. And, um, but my spiritual development really took off again. And I was really applying myself to the practices that I grew up with. And the practices that I had learned by coming in contact and community with African spiritual practices and African um, cultural practices, really just understanding myself. And so I adopted MT to remind myself to be empty of all of the labels and limitations that prevented me from seeing myself spiritually, holistically, seeing not just the things that happen in my body or just the thoughts and feelings of my mind, but the comprehensive person that I am that allows me to create beautiful relationships with human beings, with the environment, and with the divine. And so I've been going by MT um, for quite some time. I almost forgot my name was Jerome for a little bit, man. It's great. Uh, it's so beautiful to, like, one, to recognize the necessity to empty myself in order to be a servant to our community, to myself, to my family. But... Um, 
also to be able to do so while representing both, you know, parts of my heritage and lineage uh, equally, that it just plays a dual purpose that fulfills my life pretty good. I like it. <laughs> yeah, so that's my name. That's why I don't go by MT. Yeah, you talked about, like, um, kind of emptying yourself of some of the limitations. You want to talk a little bit more about that? What do you mean by limitations? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think especially in, you know, since we're talking about social work, one of the things that we all have to deal with in people and society are the limitations that our social structures have uh, have assigned us, you know, whether it being uh, the gender roles or whether it being like race roles, you know, like there are roles for our races within these structures for quite some time. Thank God that we've had ancestors and great powerful people that have come together to change these things because, you know, now we have so many more freedoms and liberties to where I can actually do that. You know, like not too long ago, if a, a person wanted to change their name so openly, it was a big deal. You know, Muhammad Ali got a lot of slack for trying to change his name. And so now we can do it so freely. We can do so much so freely. Um, but there are those limitations that we assign ourselves or that we adopt from being a part of our society, from trying to um, work as a social unit. Um, and I think it's more that, that we really try to function as a social unit and that's what motivates us to fit in or to fill these roles or these spaces within our organized society. And like the biggest one for me that was limiting was being a black man. I didn't come to the U.S. until I was like 11 years old. When I got here, I moved to Houston, Texas, Third Ward, like Sharpstown, the SWAT. Like it was just a total culture shock for me. I grew up in Europe in a military environment. So when I got to the U.S., one of the first things my father told me was, well, you're going to have to learn how to be a black man in America. There is an education for you. And as empowering as it was, because it really was empowering for me. Like I got to learn so much history of greatness, just like excellence of humanity, just amazing stories, you know? Um, but in my functional day-to-day -day interaction with society, there were a lot of boundaries and limitations that were really encompassed and encased by fear, right? And by limiting access to simple things that would bring peace and just tranquility to my immediate environment. And so those are limitations that I had to survive in and that adjusted the way that I thought, it adjusted the way that I felt. And it, you know, it provides a filter on our perspective. And a lot of times that I've had to work socially within families or within communities, that's what we're really dealing with, are the limiting concepts and ideas that we've adopted that prevent us the uninhibited connection to another person, generally, when we're talking about social work. And so these like endeavors to empty ourselves, to release these limitations so that we can move and expand ourselves to move into areas that bring other people into our experience, that bring empathy, that bring sympathy, but also just bring like real conscious intelligence, allowing us to take new information and use it differently. When we feel limited, especially in our identification, it becomes difficult for you to think outside the confines of your problems. And I think social workers, they find um, emotional and intellectual bridges 
um, beyond the limitations of people's problems or the perceptions at the time. Yeah, you I want to circle back just a little bit because you had something that's been interesting to talk about. You mentioned like um, kind of like calling upon ancestry. Uh, I wondered if you might talk about exactly how you do that. Um, you know, I've been uh, doing a lot of research over the past several years myself, and I'm from, uh, I, well, I grew up in Utah, and one of the best things about growing up in Utah is that the uh, Mormon church keeps excellent geneal genealogical records, and so I can go on their app for free, and I can literally look in every single, uh, every single direction of my uh, lineage and see everywhere it goes, like way back, like to, you know, hundreds of years, and, you know, Recently, I was, um, just so I could share a quick story, I had went back a few generations, and I, I had never known this, but uh, two, two things I found out is this guy, Daniel Heiner, through my mom's side of the family, I'm like his eldest grandson, six generations down, or seven generations down, and uh, I kind of grew up in that town as a poor kid, and really nobody gave us any mind, and I saw that guy's picture and his, and his big grave all the time and never knew that he was my grandfather. And then I also learned that he was a polygamist and he had two wives and I was the second, I was the middle child of his second wife. And um, for being such a prominent man, like his, that line of family sure went, struggled after that. Um, they're just broken families. Everybody fought with each other and is disconnected. And I was mad at him for a while about that. And I thought about it like, cause I feel like the second, you know, I'm from the second wife and, Middle child, of course, they, you know, left behind or whatever. But then later I found this letter that he wrote to his family when he was dying. And I couldn't help but be like, you know, I don't agree with some of the things that he was talking about. But like he was definitely talking from the heart. And it made me make that connection, you know. And um, it's really weird. And I can't really explain it. But I feel like that this like, uh, like it's a big circle almost. And that these these people are still kind of regenerating through my thoughts and consciousness. And like the more and more like I expose myself to it, the more and more like I see all these things at play almost like, and I, I really can't put anything to it, but like there's communication there, like um, active communication. So I was just wondering, you know, maybe you can provide us with some insight. Cause we're all, I think all of us are looking that way somewhat in this day and age, you know, looking back and seeing what we've missed and what we've lost and where we're disconnected. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's um, it's a very interesting concept. It's maybe one of the foundations of all religious practice um, and the foundation of wellness, to tell you the truth. In our ancient cultures, um, reverencing your ancestors, honoring them, knowing their story, knowing the frequency of their character was vital. It's how we passed down information is how we built solid families. You know, we would honor the, the good deeds and the successes and the good characters of our loved ones from the past. So we know what patterns work, you know. Um, when I came into, you know, African practices, African traditional practices and spiritual practices and religion, it was one of the greatest uh, reliefs for me because Growing up Christian, especially a black Christian man in America or in the United States, ancestral reverence was very much like looked down upon and almost like, you know, you were told not to do it pretty much. And when I came into the tradition, um, 
one, I was immediately told that I had to honor my Christian faith because I was an ordained minister. So I had to reconcile something real quick. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. This modern religion with this ancient tradition, how does it work? Uh, found out, you know, through a little bit of study and, and some practice that they've been linked this whole time, like all things in human history. And that's why it's so important. These patterns of successful relationship to the world and to other people and to concepts bigger than ourselves, like integrity, like honesty, like love, like compassion and empathy. These um, patterns are, they're important just as much as like in psychology, the pattern of trauma is important. How did that play out? So are the patterns of success. And many times that's the bridge that will move us beyond our problem or our limitation. And when you can see that you had a great grandfather or a grandfather or an aunt or someone down the line that already surpassed the limitation that you're experiencing now, you fundamentally activate within your body and within your consciousness, oh, I have this experience already outside of my problem. I already have an experience of solutions outside of the problem. I already have an experience of an experience greater than the limitations that I'm experiencing now. And it's very difficult for human beings to learn anything without a recognition or a recognition of uh, an experience that we've had. And so when we're able to tap into those ancestral patterns of success and of good character, of integrity, then we get to recognize, we get to re-put those things together. We get to think about it again. We get to add value to that thing again and put it into our life in a modern time, in a modern place. So a lot of times when we're, even when we're going back into like say therapy, when we're going through therapy, all we're doing is going back to the ancestor of our present. Who were you at the time that that trauma happened is an ancestor to who you are right now dealing with your therapy and working on your healing or whatnot. And so that connection allows us to identify these patterns of the past to provide productive ones for the future. Was that like, did that resonate well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have a, a couple follow-up questions to that. Um, one, well, I guess three, three. I wonder if you could talk more specifically about how you did it, like how you found it and how you, um, and two, uh, and maybe you've had experience, maybe you haven't, but some people may experience one of two things. They may experience something they don't like. They might find out information they don't like. For example, they might find out what if your you know, your ancestor was a slave driver or something like that, just, just throwing it out there. Or they may get a roadblock like, um, you know, Alicia, my wife is the exact opposite of me. Her roots are England and Jamaica, and she can't find any anything behind like one generation. Um and so she has a roadblock. So she's got to kind of not saying that there's no information to be found at some point, but she's got to seek somewhere else besides like records and searching for photos and actual documented history. She's got to look inward, I, I guess you'd say. So I just wonder if you could, um, you know, provide some more of your thoughts about those. Yeah, you know, um, let me see. What's the best way to answer this one? So there are like, there are practices that have been around for thousands of years that we've maintained. And there's some simple ones that I can like share that you can do every day. You can do it any time of the day. You don't need like any special sacred space for it or anything like that. But generally the practice is to set aside, to sanctify, to set apart a 
particular area of your home, generally a table and or like even a wall. It's very much like in our modern times, especially in the United States, this is like a memory wall where you have pictures of everyone that was in your family that passed on and you kind of would just walk by and whoever was older would tell you stories about them. That type of reverence and that type of practicality is really the fundamental necessity for every person. Just like remembering some stories. So generally like pictures, photos, something that like uh, engages the senses that brings that person to mind, brings that image to mind. And then um, the other thing is very important is speaking their name, literally just saying their name, uttering the frequency of that life. That's really what the name was. And for, you know, since we started with names, that's really what the name was, was a, it was a, an oral imprint of frequency to what your life was supposed to do. This is why like in our ancient traditions, it was like you were named after the characteristics that you were supposed to portray in the world, you know, strength or whatever. And so now we just have names. Now we're just like, we're cool with it, right? Like we're just creative. Um, so now we can maybe move with some more intention when we're naming our children and ourselves and the projects that we even do to align them with the frequencies that we want. But when we speak their name, that's what we're doing. We're just uttering their frequency to say, hey, you're present, you're here, you're alive, you're still remembered. And I think, you know, that word remember is so important to me because it comes back to the very first story. The very first story of human history that we know is a story is the hero story. It's the story of Heru and ancient Kemet or what we call Egypt, right? So you have this idea, this trinity of a mother and a father. The father gets killed by his brother and he separates the body parts into like 13, 14 pieces, scatters them all around the world. And the wife goes and she fetches them, goes and finds them and she brings them back together. And she remembers, she takes all the pieces, the members of his body and puts them together. And this is what we're doing. We're taking the members of ourselves, the people that came before us, that have built the, the organic structures of our bodies, the emotional and psychological structures of our minds, and even the intelligence, you know, like every time that our ancestors expanded their intelligence, expanded their capacities, they expanded our capacity in the time that we came. And so when we do this, we really are just like echoing that frequency in our lives and allowing it to be powerful because we're all learning that vibration creates reality. Whatever you are frequently doing, that mechanism of action is going to produce a material you know, product. Whatever you've been feeling, that's going to become your mood and become your behavior. Whatever you're thinking is going to become your perspective and the things that you say. And so when we really focus on the vibration and frequency of our ancestors, it allows us to remember ourselves, to put ourselves back together holistically. And then in that story, when she does, she only gets a little bit, right? She gets like 13 out of the 14, 12 out of the 13, and she puts them together. And in that process, something new grows. Another part is now affirmed. Something else comes out of it. And that's really the the experience of human interaction. We have ourselves, we remember, we're putting little bits of information together, right? Remembering all of these things. And when we do that, our intelligence sparks a new phenomenon, a new experience for us. 
And when we want to get in tap and in touch with those experiences beyond our limitations, our ancestors apparently have been the longest running mechanism of just saying their name and like pouring out a little bit of water that really helps. And so the system is that, you know, it's like pouring out a drink for the homies is really a legit thing. We would pour libations. You would just pour out a little bit of water and you would give gratitude. And it could just be something as simple as thank you for all my ancestors for letting me be here. It could be like, I just had a thought this morning of my grandfathers and my great grandmother. I just poured out a little bit of coffee this morning and said, Hey, uh, Grandma Fannie Mae, thank you for playing dominoes with me and like shooting the mess with me and like, you know, calling people out on the side. So I always knew when, you know, there was something that was iffy or something that wasn't in full integrity, that there was somebody in the family that would call it out. Thank you, because now that gave me the capacity to see, observe, call it out, and then adjust my actions. Right. So simple things like that, where we just pour out a little water or whatever we're drinking saying their name and doing it with an intention or an energy of reverence of appreciation and gratitude. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, and with us kind of, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. Uh, and you you kind of took us there yourself, but like in thinking more in a practical sense and um, social workers, you know, um, from my experience, many social workers are have, traumatic or difficult backgrounds themselves. And that's what maybe inspires them to want to go and help others. Um, and, and so I think a social worker in general, even with a, with a happy background, for example, a fine, happy background, um, we, they all need, we all need tools for self-regulation, but especially those of us that, you know, may have trauma in our backgrounds, certain things we may be working with someone that causes a, a reaction within our body. And then, you know, we, we respond something like, um, maybe in a way, in a reactionary way that we developed from childhood as a defense mechanism or something like that. And so I'm wondering if you have any tips for self-regulation, any tools, um, you know, maybe that we can use to hold ourselves accountable for a daily practice, breath work, um, anything like that that, can, that might be able to help social workers with self-regulation. Most definitely. You, my favorite, my favorite. Right? Uh, breath work to me is the most fundamental tool that we have as human beings to regulate ourselves. Um, we have more and more science every day that's like supporting these facts. But when we consciously use our breath, we not only can regulate our nervous system, which, you know, really facilitates all of our responses to the outside world and even to the inside world, um, but it also for me, what I found is it allows me space and time to enact and command my free will. Um, and for me, that's real self-regulation is beyond the sensory uh, information and downloads that I'm getting, being able to stand in the present moment and choose whatever it is that I want to do, not what I think I should do or what the environment's requiring of me but what it is that I want in that moment. And that, you know, that capacity of ours to use free will, I think we, especially recently in times, we really downplay it. We don't really understand or understand. We don't really accept it for ourselves, how much of it is ours, how much of it is absolutely empowered by the way you use your God-given mind. You know, it's like 
you have this amazing thing and all you have to do is activate it. And the breath provides the space for us to do so. And for me, breath work is that fundamental tool. And not only can you just rise in different states of consciousness, but literally just bringing the nervous system from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic, you know, structure, organization, or filter is like phenomenal. And it's, you know, it's something that I know we all are trained on and given a little bit of access. To but I find that the practicality of it isn't always um, enforced or enhanced. It's not very much empowered. When you do it on a daily basis, when you really bring it into um, into function of those spaces of fear, of those spaces of disconnect, the relationship you will have with your breath changes fundamentally. And I'll give you my personal experience. I've been doing breath work since I was about 13 years old. I started with Zazen breath work. It was a great way. I was able to walk with it. So I really loved it because I could take the breath. Even, you know, as a spiritualist, we're trained in so many ways of meditation, so many ways to do breathing, to reach other states of consciousness. But I never had to really use it personally, like as Jerome Lamar Mester II, the Trevino, Jerome M.T., that dude hadn't had to use it in a time of crisis until I was about 30-something years old. I was in Vietnam. I was doing dance with a, a group of people who were dancing some African spiritual dances, and we would just train out in, you know, out in the open in the park, just like how you saw me doing in Waikiki. I was just extending that practice from Vietnam. So we were there, and it was a really hot day, and we had these drums playing, and I'm trying to learn the dance, but I'm trying to do it. And at the same time, I got a friend from Cambodia that I used to do martial arts with, and he just wants to train. So I have a friend over here bugging me to train while I'm trying to learn something. I'm not getting it. I'm hot. And boom, this huge culmination, PTSD episode on a 1,000. Boom, I break down. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm punching the ground. I scream at everybody, leave me alone. I run to the other side of the park. It's about a quarter mile you know, long. I book it to the other side of the, you know, of the field. I get there and I'm just like shaking from how much like frustration I was experiencing, how much limitation I was experiencing. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt like I couldn't expand. I couldn't speak. And I just heard somebody say, remember your practice. Remember your breath. So I sat down. I started breathing. And it was difficult. I was like hyperventilating. You know, I was in that fight or flight situation and I was, <sighs> and I had to come and mindfully choose to command my breath. And I did. I took me some time, but I sat down and I got it. I got into my rhythm and then I started to really breathe. The moment that set in, this beautiful wave of space. And that's all it was. It was just space from what I was feeling at that moment, just a little bit of space, a little bit of cushion. And I said, oh, okay, it's gonna pass. I remember now that all sensations, every thought, every feeling, I've never been depressed my entire life. I've never been happy my entire life. I've never been disappointed my entire life. It's always past. 
I've never maintained the same thought of disappointment or sadness or any of that, even anger and anxiety. It's always come with a new sensation, a new thought immediately afterwards. I just have to get to it. So I got the space to get to it. And I got so freaking happy. I got so empowered. I was like, yo, let me get back in this breath. And I got grounded and grounded. The greatest thing was a little bit later, I was able to return to my group, return to my friends. My brothers from the military, they came over and they're like, hey, man, we've seen this before, but we've never seen it from you. What happened? I was able to share my story. I was now able to now release this pain that was holding in that I didn't get to share with many people. I shared it with my brothers. They held me in accountability, held me in love. One of my brothers from the military told me he loved me for the very first time. We like 35 years old. You know, he's telling me, hey, man, I love you. He's crying. I'm crying. They're embracing me. It was absolutely wonderful. That evening, I laughed harder than I had ever laughed. I don't remember laughing like that since I was like 9, 10 years old, like from the bottom of my gut laughing, right? And it just proved and manifested to me again, oh, all these sensations passed. And all I need to do is activate the space that my free will gives me and that my breath facilitates. And so for me, breath work has been my, in my personal life and in with all of my clients, the fundamental tool to self-regulate. It will do it biologically, it'll do it mentally and emotionally, but for me, it just provides space. Enough space away from the limiting concepts and principle and experiences that we're having to enact our free will. What do you think about it? Because I know like you've been doing some breath work of your own and that you guys went on that journey for yourself. How does it facilitate for you? Do you agree? Does it does it work for you in a similar manner? Uh, first of all, I'd agree that breath is the number one tool. Um, not saying that I always utilize it to its full capacity. But you know, I think back to the first time anybody ever made me aware of breath, I was in, I went to rehab a long, 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 like 20 years ago. And um, they had some guy come in and he talked to us about breathing. And I think he talked about yoga, but it was so outside of my, you know, my realm of understanding that I, I'm not sure at this point. And so, um, yeah, and I remember thinking, that's just weird. What the hell is this guy talking about? You know, this weird guy coming in here talking to us about breathing and stretching and moving and stuff. I was like, whatever. So fast forward way down the road and I was up in... Um, as far north as you can go in the United States of America, up in Utiagovic in Barrow, Alaska, on the Arctic Ocean, and was working for the university and um, as a student wellness coordinator, and I supervised the, uh, among other things, the, um, the recreation department. And you know, a lot of there's not a lot of opportunities up there for things like that, and so we're trying different things. And I ordered these yoga, um, these yoga DVDs, but they included like uh, a Breath of Fire, uh, Pranayama stuff like that. And like, it totally changed me. I, I, I mean, beyond anything I could ever explain to here. And then, you know, I kept reading about things and I would, I would say this, that just this having the simple tool of like, when something is going on, frustration, anxiety, whatever, um, being able to stop and recognize that you're breathing shallowly and to, I mean, I've used it 15 times in this episode already, you know, where my mind's wandering or I'm thinking about something or even you mentioned breath and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I do it in every, again, sometimes I forget and or, I, or I'm not actively practicing, but it, um, you know, it can manifest itself in every part of my life as far as, you know, getting me out of sticky situations, bringing me back. 
one of my big things is a wandering mind, preoccupied mind. So bringing me back into the present. So, you know, like, for example, you see the view behind me, right? And there's whales and sea lions out here. I got three beautiful children downstairs. But sometimes I wake up and I don't even see my kids and I don't even see that. And I'm thinking about my emails and maybe this podcast and every, uh, all sorts of things, you know, that aren't in the current moment, the present moment. And just by taking a breath, oh, hey, hey, Zaid, hey, Naya, hey, Leah. Oh, hey, there's a humpback whale out there. Maybe I should take a look at it, you know? Beautiful out there. Maybe I should go for a walk, get some fresh air. Um, all the way to, you know, I've done, like I said, the pranayama breathing, breath of fire, things like that. Um, it's been amazing. And, and I hope uh, those of you that are listening come back in two weeks because my wife, Alicia, will be on. And she is much more, uh, she's developed her practice much better than I have, much more consciously and implemented into her, like an actual daily practice. So I'll be looking forward um, to hearing that from her and, and, and to share that with you all. But I have a question, MT. What about if anybody is in here that was me 20 years ago and they hear you talking about breath and they're like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Um, or even they've heard about it, but they just don't know. How does somebody find their breath that doesn't, hasn't found it and, and how can they get started on accessing it, utilizing it um, as, a, as a tool? How can they do that? You know, like, I feel really inclined just to, like, teach a fundamental breath, like, mechanism. It's called the breath of life. I think I will, like, share that if you guys don't mind. Um, but one of the things that, you know, this idea that that we kind of need, all we really need is an invitation, you know? everyone that's heard it, you've been invited to use this fundamental tool. You know, I think we really just have to stop blaming other people for our necessity to use tools that are at our disposal. And it's like, you wake up every day. The only way that you function is through breathing. It's logical, you know, it's biological, it's mentally logical. Breath is what facilitates all of your life. So, if you can't stop and breathe for a second, we're just choosing not to. We know now that it helps, you know? And so we kind of just have to make the choice to just stop and breathe. And I say it that way because that was my experience. All the education that I had in the world, all the information didn't do anything for me when my PTSD episode popped up. I had to put it into action. I had to choose, I had to sit there and say, I don't want to have this experience anymore. And I've heard that there's this tool. I need to sit down and try it. And when I did, it worked. <laughs> it's so crazy. It just works. It's the greatest thing ever because it doesn't matter how you try it. It doesn't matter when you try it. It doesn't matter for how long you try it. If you just take one conscious breath, your system fundamentally changes. And you're going to recognize it. You know, And you just have to be open and ready to accept a new sensation. For me, I find that this is where the expansion of the concept of breath work, going into how we speak, using the breath and creating frequency into the real world is also another form of breath work and I think also very paramount to social work. There's so much communication that goes on that we need to also be conscious of the work of our breath outside of ourselves. And so I think like we know that words can create or destroy, 
We know that breathing is what facilitates either our life or our death. So we just need to enact it and embody it and use it. You know, it's right there. All you got to do is, you know, you're doing it already. You know, the only thing that you have to do is apply some attention. And, you know, personally, I find that was a little bit the difficulty for me was giving myself attention, giving myself the allowance to attend to myself when my environment was dictating that I needed to attend to it. Right. And I found that was my biggest roadblock. But the moment I started making the choice to attend to myself, to give myself that attention, I noticed the power I had to change. And for me, that's that's fundamental as a human being, you know, and the longer that we have the capacity to live, the more that we're going to need these abilities to to change and to do so according to our own free will, right? To not let other things change us, but to say, you know what? I feel like being happy today, yo. Like, I feel like that's my birthright. I woke up today. I know that I should be all right. And I can choose it. And to me, that's the most empowering thing. If somebody told me 10, 20 years ago, Jerome, this breath work, all of this like spirituality stuff, all of this wellness stuff, it ain't about you being some optimal superhuman. It's about you having the freedom to choose how you feel and how you think, no matter what circumstance or situation you're facing. And it's not going to prevent you from experiencing unpleasant things, but it will prevent you from suffering those things beyond the time of them happening. And I think that's where, especially us as social workers and people that feed into our societies and our communities, that's like a really big deal, you know? It's like, how is that energy being manifested into the real world? And so we just have to choose it for ourselves. And it's really that, you know? You just make the choice and you do it. And it, again, it becomes very easy when you put that frequency out. Start telling yourself that you're gonna do breath work every day and give yourself a really small amount of time. I tell everyone, start with three minutes. Put a timer on, three minutes. Nobody can tell me you don't have three minutes, you know? So you take three minutes, sit down, and just, just sit there and breathe. You don't even have to do it, like, in any type of, you know, mechanized way. Just sit there and breathe consciously, and it'll work for you, you know? It's like, it sells itself, man. It's so great. It's so amazing. It's so easy. It's so cool. So, you know, I guess with that, I should just, like, teach us a little bit of breath work. But go ahead, please. I was just going to add that, you know, the way that you say it sounds to me like you're asking people, you're inviting folks to uh, introduce themselves to their breath or maybe even to themselves and create a relationship, have a relationship with your breath yourself, however you want to, whatever words you want to use. But you know what I mean? That's what it sounds like you're saying to me. Man, you know what I found so amazing? Like, I really started studying, like, the breath and, and just oxygen and the relationship to it, to the body. And what I found so interesting was like, when I first started doing breath work and when I came back to it as a, a practice in my daily life, I always felt like I couldn't get enough air. I always felt like I couldn't fill myself up enough or I wasn't doing enough, right? These, all these weird limitations we put on ourselves. But what I've learned is that every cell in your body has a direct relationship to oxygen. When you breathe, you don't breathe through your nose. 
You breathe through every cell in your body. Your follicles of hair are pulling in oxygen. Your skin cells, everything about you is pulling in air. So at all times, there's an abundance of life surrounding me, right? And in Hawaii, we really have that as a part of the culture, right? The aloha spirit is really about your relationship to air. How do you relate to your breath and how does that breath relate to other people? Because we know that we share all the same air. We share the same source of life. So I'm not going to put out into that source something negative and something bad and something, you know, destructive or resistance. Instead, I'm going to put out love. I'm going to put out some gratitude or that's what we're supposed to do. Right. And so for me, like that's really the, the practice and the necessity is just to choose it for yourself really connect to yourself, really give yourself that allowance, just tap into the breath, know that it works, you know, because it's what gives you life anyway. And you're sufficient, you know, you're already sufficient, you're already an expert. I've been breathing for over 39 years, you know, like I got a PhD in breath, bro. I've been doing it for so long, you know, give me two or three of them. I've been breathing so much. I've been breathing while I'm running, been breathing while I'm swimming, been breathing while I'm meeting people, while I'm on a computer. I can breathe at any time. I'm a master breather, you know, like, here we go. I can do it. So that's every human being's personal experience. You're already a master at the skill. We're just asking for you to bring a little bit of attention on your capacity to command it, to really orchestrate, to organize it, to alchemize it, to fashion it, to mold it, into what you want. And when you can inhale a certain frequency, a certain vibration, when you inhale love, when you inhale power, when you inhale connection, then guess what's coming out of you? You don't exhale the opposite. You exhale that which like facilitates and nurtures and grows that gives to others to bring that back, right? And we know this because that's the way oxygen works with plants. Right, we inhale their product and we exhale something that makes them facilitate what we need. And that's all we're doing. And when we do that for ourselves, we do it for our environment, we do it for our families, we do it for our communities, and that branches out into our society. And I feel really blessed because this is what all of our ancestors, no matter where you come from, we all have human ancestry. We're all the same people. And so this is what our families have been doing for millennia since the beginning of human existence has been really using this breath, commanding it to regulate our thoughts, our emotions, but also our activity and character. Because for me and our traditions and the way that you know we're educated, the goal is always good character. Iwa Pele, right? To be in right standing with yourself, with nature, and with the divine, that's really it. Whatever makes you and the people around you function well, that's the good character that we want to embody. And your breath is the thing that empowers your choice to do so. Thank you. So go ahead, teach us. You were going to teach us something. Demonstration. Awesome. Okay, so this is called the breath of life. And I love it because our ancestors believed in the multidimensional experience of humanity. They believe that we were a spirit, soul, and body, that we had a physical being, that we had a mental being, and that we had an energetic being. 
And so we wanted to always fulfill these three major dimensions of ourselves with every breath. And so we located those first, the body is here in the womb, in our belly, right? And so here in our stomach area, generally what I would tell is to take two fingers, you put them right where you would think or where you would imagine ovaries to be. Now, for my feminine bodies, you have a far better, you know, experience and awareness of that. So feel free to put it there. For my gentlemen, just think of where your natural genitalia are and come up about three and a half inches, four inches, and put your fingers there. Now, the reason why we have our fingers here is because this is the point of contact at the very base of the womb. Instead of trying to fill up your belly from the top and fill it up with all this air, I really want us to push that air all the way into the body. I want you to think about the activation of life. Every person in this world came from the activation of some ovaries where there was a phosphorus explosion and that's what began the spark of life. So that's what we want to spark in ourselves, okay? So when we inhale, we're gonna inhale through the nose and we just wanna fill our belly up with air, with oxygen, filling up our womb and allowing where our fingers are to expand. We just want to feel it expand one good time and that's good, all right? So let's just try that part for now. And everyone relax, all right? Don't get too much in your head. All we're doing is breathing. You're already masters, all right? And let's inhale, filling up that belly, letting those fingers move forward. And then just gently release. Let's do it two more times. Inhale. Gently release. Last time. Let's really feel that womb. Inhale. And release. Beautiful, we can open our eyes a little bit. Now that section is the womb. Now when we think about like our chakra system, those are our first three chakras, right? The root all the way to the solar plexus. This is what sustains us. This is also what builds our identity, but also our connection to other people, to our families, to relationships. And so this is the fulfillment center. This is how you as a person are fulfilled. So before we can move into any other space, what do we have to do first? Fulfill ourselves, right? Isn't that a great practice? Before we go out into the world, we have to attend to ourselves. And so our ancestors knew that first we attend to ourselves. Now, once we fill that area, the next chamber is our heart. It's right here in the heart center. But instead of us breathing and rising our shoulders like this, like we have a responsibility to the world, <laughs> We're gonna open up our heart and let everything expand. I really think of it as like uh, thinking of a ballerina and she does her big old like, you know, pas de shaw or something and she opens up her arms real nice and wide and the rib cage opens. Or I think of a bodybuilder doing his show and he goes like that and spreads his lats. I really think of the chest cavity expanding, opening. I don't wanna put any more responsibility. I really want to open and create space. I want to expand. All right. So we're going to try it now here in the heart. If you want to, you can put a hand on your heart or in the center of your chest. 
And when we inhale, we're just going to breathe into the heart space. Let everything expand. Try not to lift up. There's no responsibility. All right? Let's give ourselves two breaths into the heart. And inhale. Release. One more beautiful inhale. And release. And we open our eyes. Now what I love about the heart is that our ancestors understood that here in the heart is where we connect to other people. Right? This is where we expand and we embrace and we bring people into our, our space. This is where we connect to people. And so we have to fulfill this second. This is after we've been fully fulfilled. Now we can branch out and begin to connect with other people safely and empowered. Now, doing that over and over every day for your entire life, you're going to run into contrast. And you're going to need some inspiration. You're going to need some enlightenment on the inside, some motivation to keep you going, to keep that process moving forward. And so our ancestors always looked up to the sun, the moon, and the stars for guidance. And we know this. We look at constellations or I'm in Hawaii. They still, you know, go across the entire globe in a ship just by looking at the stars. The stars always represent direction. So after we fulfill ourselves, when we're connecting with all these people, we still need to remember to look for a little direction. So we fill up all of this into the neck and into the ears and into the nose. We really want oxygen to expand here and what you'll feel is there's just a little slight i'll show you right now here's the tilt just that just a little look just a little look up it's like if your dad is like six inches taller than you and you just need to look up to his eyes you know just a little bit of a lift all right so let's give ourselves that breathing into our consciousness now and we're going to give that three times yeah and inhale Release. Inhale. And release. Last one. Inhale. And release. Now, the breath of life constitutes all three of these at once. So we fulfill our womb, then we open our heart, and then we look for inspiration. But we do this all in one breath. So I typically tell people, take about a count of three or four to inhale. And just think of these three major areas and allow your body to naturally move with it. And then when we exhale, let's also release for a count of three. Right? So it's going to sound like this. Let's do that three times, and we're going to fill our belly, fill our chest, let it rise into our, our higher consciousness, and then release. So we go belly, heart, head, and release. All right, so let's all do it now. Here we go. Let's settle into our bodies. Beautiful, beautiful. 
If you'd like to, go ahead and put your hands down there on the ovaries or on the belly or on the heart or whatever makes you connect well. And let's go. Let's fulfill the womb, the heart, and our consciousness. And begin. Inhale. And release for three. Inhale. Release for three. Beautiful. Remember, every cell in your body has a direct relationship with oxygen. Feel. Womb, heart, mind, consciousness, and release. Now, this great, like, little fact that I learned was that it takes about seven seconds for the human being to register an activity, an action, a phenomenon outside of itself, and to be able to make a conscious decision toward a response to that. If we just took this three-second inhale and exhale, it takes about seven seconds. Anytime that we have a phenomenon that makes us face a limitation or that brings a contrast into our existence, into our experience, I, I just, I invite you to really, I welcome you to just do this practice, to just try it, to fill yourself first, then allow yourself to expand to other things and look for a little inspiration and then to release all that into your body and then make a response, then empower your will to choose. Thank you so much for like letting me share that, brother. I really, I love that stuff. It's my favorite stuff to do. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for blessing us with that. I want to turn it over to Lee in just a minute, but I have one quick question. Thinking about imagining uh, our social workers or our future future social workers, to say future current social workers, future social work graduates. Um, you know, let, let's say that they're they're new on the job. Let's just throw a scenario. They're new on the job. They identify a client, somebody they're working with. Um, that could use some a little bit of breath work and they just want to get them started. From the other side of it, from like a facilitator side of it, can you provide any tips on how they can help others? Like just with beginning practice, because just to give a little um, context, I the only people that I've really done breath work with is actually my children in the mornings. We do some some a little breath work. And I don't really can't, I've never really figured out a way for me to do it with them. I know they're kids, so they need more direction, but I can't count and participate in the breathing exactly the way I'd like to. So, but I noticed you did it. You seem to do it very effectively. So I'm just wondering if you can, you know, uh, provide a little direction or a few tips on, on how our practitioners might help others practice. Yeah, definitely. One, uh, the number one thing I have learned is anytime you're trying to share something, you have to give before you even begin, you have to give grace to yourself and the person you're sharing with. You're not going to get it right. It's not, you're not there. You're not some master person that can just make it click in someone's head. You can only try to offer your best tools and your best articulation. So just try your best, really. Um, the other is breath is a way for an individual to connect with themselves. When they've come into some type of traumatic experience, 
sometimes that's better facilitated when an appropriate connection with another person is made. So one is just at the moment that you find that that tool is useful, doesn't mean that we interject it into the communication and conversation. You should build a rapport and build a connection with the person to where they open up enough and you start to change their breathing pattern for them. The first way is to regulate yourself, right? Much like you said in the beginning, the only way that I'm able to sit here and to discuss it with you is that I've had to put this practice in my life until it became a fundamental and working functional part of it. So we have to do it for ourselves. I do it all the time. When I go and I hug someone that I haven't seen for a while, I adjust my breathing. I make sure that I elongate my exhale. And they start to do the same and they fundamentally begin to connect and resonate with me and become more present with me in that space and time. When we are talking to our clients and the people that we're servicing, sometimes just the pace of your own speech will dictate to them how you're breathing. You know, like right now I changed the pace of my speaking because I adjusted the way that I was breathing so that we could have a more connected experience, you know? And so for me, that's the first thing is I regulate myself, I regulate my tone, and I bring my breathing consciously into our communication so that they can feel the change of energy, so that they can feel the change in myself. Then once I realize that that's happening or that they've made that recognition, then I might introduce it. If it's appropriate and comfortable, there may be like a touch of the hand or a holding of the hands where we come together, depending on what that person's comfortability is or what the situation you know, requires. Sometimes you do need that. And then literally it's just like, let's just take a breath. Before we talk, let's just relax real quick. We've both been experiencing things throughout the day. Let's just take a breath and, and we'll go from there. You know, let's get ourselves centered together. Let's, let's come together. And I don't know about you, but when any time another human being sets aside time and space for me personally, it opens me up, it sends a wave of relaxation, and it allows me to breathe easier. So those are my like number, you know, those are my top ways for us to help facilitate the acceptance or the receptivity to using this tool. Yeah, thank you for that. I know Lee's been waiting. She has some important stuff she wanted to talk about. You there, Lee? It kicked me out earlier. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, good. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing all this stuff, MT. It's just very valuable and enlightening. I feel less tense just from doing your breathing exercise. Um, you know, like Christian mentioned earlier, with his own experience 20 years ago and naturally being skeptical to trying new practices, um, you know, I've experienced that myself too. When I was introduced to breathing work, breath work and just being like, you know, do I need this or what's the point? Um, and then, you know, working with individuals with substance use and, you know, them having zero interest and then it transpires into the vibes of the group. And so you already touched on it um, as far as getting people to want to use these tools. So I won't ask directly, like, what the buy-in is because you answered it with, you know, 
it's not so much of creating a buy-in because the buy-in is there. It just is a matter of conscious effort and acknowledging it. And for me, that really stood out because, you know, I think about next time I run a group and I attempt a guided meditation or breath work, um, you know, maybe there's some resistance, which is okay. It's to be, you know, expected, but just to, you know, let them, the approach is you guys are already doing the work. Like you said, you have a PhD in it. You've been breathing your whole life. So, um, I just thank you for that explanation because it really brings such clarity to something that seems so simple, you know, in a way. Um, but that being said, uh, do you have any like certain videos or websites just for people who are listening and future listeners that can go to, um, you know, for maybe step-by-step breath work or, you know, introductory breath work, you know, something just to kind of open them up to it? Yeah. You know, there's, there's all, there's so many different methods that are available. Um, you get it in almost every meditation app. You're going to get it. And now it's become a, a bigger practice. There's a lot of breath work. Um, Wim Hof seems to be a really nice um, system that people are, are really using successfully. It definitely provides you optimal biological use of the system. Um, you know, it's so accessible. You know, like you can get breath work for everything. Like you can be like, I have a headache. I need breath work for a headache and you can YouTube it and it'll pop up. You know, the resources are uh, just phenomenal. Um, I do like Wim Hof system. I think it's, he articulates it really well. And it's something that the type of breath work, it makes you feel something physically. Um, and that is really encouraging to a lot of beginners when they can feel a sensation of change or difference. Um, I also love, um, there's like Dr. Joe Dispenza does a little bit of brain heart coherence meditation and the way that he guides those meditations facilitates breath work very well. And so I also like that because it brings the intention of breath work into an emotional and intellectual space. Um, you can go and look me up on YouTube as well. I do like a little short video on breath work discussing this one. Um, you can look up the breath of life on YouTube as well. I think there's some videos on it. Um, and I personally say if you find someone, a practitioner in your area that does breath work, try it out and see what that mechanism does for you. And there's, you know, there's certain ones, but anytime you put any conscious effort into your breathing, I encourage an extended exhale. Uh, I think many of us, we hold on to so much of our breath that we don't release it. And this causes little blockages in the body. It causes stress um, to be held on, you know, it's really, um, letting go of all of the things that we're taking in, right? That's kind of our big issue anyway. We take in all of these experiences from life and we forget to let all of it go, you know, and let the next one come in. And so I just say extend the exhale. But, you know, that's really kind of it. Does that answer your question? Well, you know? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, you know, just to touch on that more, you mentioned earlier, like, Essentially, you know, practice makes perfect. We have to actively practice these things for them to become secondhand or more natural. And I know for me, the first few times I did breath work, 
once I started focusing on my breath, I felt like I couldn't breathe and I could never make that connection. And it's like, so it was discouraging. And so naturally I wanted to like give up or I'm like, it's not for me. Um, but with time and doing it more, like Christian said, like, you know, even during the show, when you were mentioning breath work, I catch myself doing it. And so just those small habits have built up and doing the exercise with you just now. Um, I feel like I can actually do breath work without feeling like I can't breathe or that I'm doing it wrong. So yeah, just to reiterate the, you know, it takes time with anything else, right? Something that you mentioned is like, it's a model and it's something that I tell every person that I teach. There's power in the practice and wisdom in the work. Every time you put in a practice, every time you practice using this breath work, you're empowered to do it even greater the next time. It's like, it's an exponential growth as well. It's like the moment you put in effort, you grow and are empowered to do it again. It's not like you do it and it changes your life. No, you have to keep doing it over. Remember, we keep using the word frequency. It's not just like tuning into your favorite radio station. It's how much do you frequent this tool? How much do you use it? How much are you empowering it? I can't be a construction worker until I know how to use a hammer expertly well and know how to use it in conjunction to what I'm building. So I need to be able to know how to use my breath in conjunction to the sensations I want to use. And that comes from the wisdom of the work, of taking those moments where I say, I should do breath work. And then empowering myself and saying, I'm going to do it. And then just sitting there and doing the practice. That's the work. That's the real work. The challenge of yourself to take the opportunity, the invitation that's waiting for you to regulate yourself and bring peace back into your situation. And so all you have to do is practice. Anytime you practice, it doesn't matter how long, doesn't matter how like empowering or how transformative it was. Don't worry. Just go back. Go back. If you like stop after two minutes and you want it like three minutes that day, take 30 seconds and then do 60 seconds and finish it. It doesn't matter. All you have to do is the practice. And every time you do it, you're empowered to do it again. And every time you make the decision to you get the wisdom as to why it's important, as to how it's important, how it's relevant, how it's practical in your life. And that's like that's been my motto for man, maybe the past 12, 13 years, and it's fundamentally changed everything that I do. Because I know anything that I put frequency to, it can create a reality that I desire. And so put the power in, put some practice in, get that power, use that wisdom uh, from doing the work of challenging yourself to take that invitation every day. And then, you know, I tell my people, try it for like 21 days. Try it for 21 days and I get like, that's all you have to do because like, you're not going to write me back and tell me that it didn't work. Like, I know it is 100% is flawless. Breath work is flawless. All you have to do is try. And it's so empowering because it gives you that space to command your own choice. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I just wanted to add that I threw a couple of resources that me and uh, Alicia use in the in the chat. Uh, the first one is just a YouTube video to John nine breath work, but she actually, she's out of Jamaica, but she, ha- she hosts cohorts where you can like meet up every Saturday and do, and do breath work for like a period of six weeks. Or I, I don't know how long they are, but I think they're weekly and they go over time. She's awesome. And then this other one, intervention TV, some of it's kind of whitewashed, but 
there's 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 a lot of diversity on the app and it's a subscription base but it has anything you want like certain kinds of yoga breath work meditation it has um for those of you that maybe want to get into it and want like you were saying like 21 days you want a 21 day program they probably have like from yeah. breath work to yoga to to meditation they've got um some programs that you could sign up for 30 minutes 45 minutes hour long all sorts yeah. of things so so that's there for you um and uh, I just wanted to release, read what Alicia said in the chat. It says, I love what you said about regulating your breath when you meet someone. That's key for us as social workers. We talk about tone of voice a lot, but I think breath is just as maybe more important. When we're helping someone who's dysregulated, we can use a breath to help us and re help us and them reach a calmer state. Appreciate that. You know, like, that's such a, a great point. You know, as a man that's been in a relationship with women my whole life, tone has always been something that's been resonating right as it changes the value of what i'm saying if i use an incorrect tone and that's really how we're stressing our vocal cords right so if we relax the system like sister alicia said and just self-regulate then we actually can regulate our tone you know it just changes the energy i'm gonna speak to you completely different when i'm at peace and i'm happy than when i'm stressed or i'm trying to figure something out you know when i'm trying to execute something i may be a little bit more strenuous but if i take that breath i can come in with the type of peaceful energy that's needed to facilitate the healing that we're working on you know so thank you sister alicia that's phenomenal i'm gonna use that next time somebody tell me to check my tone i'll be like <laughs> all right boo boo i got you i got you <laughs> all right well i want to keep it open for lee if you have any more but i also want to uh, if anybody ha wants to call in or ask a question in the chat, uh, now would be the time. I was just going to make a comment, too, off of what Alicia said about just interacting with somebody or seeing somebody, but just knowing that like, our nervous systems are speaking to each other long before we're actively communicating with each other. And so um, but those are things that we don't think about day to day or if you're not in the field, maybe, or if you haven't dug deep. So um yeah, I think it's nice to be mindful of tone, voice, breath, uh, because that just transpires into positive interactions, if that's the case anyway. Um, I was going to make a comment earlier. I've lost it. Hopefully it comes back around. Uh, I don't see anything else in the chat. They could be typing. Oh, Here's Alicia. You want to let, let's get Alicia and then we'll, we'll ask that. The, uh, oh, you have a caller. Okay. So Alicia, I know we had problems with the sound last time. So if you can't hear me, once I take you on, know you're live now. Hi, Alicia, you there? Hey brother. Hi, Christian. Um, I had a question more about your daily ritual. So as Christian said, I, I'm a breathwork nerd for sure, but are there things on top of breathwork you use, um, to regulate your nervous system? Um, yes, you know, um, my daily practice is, is now very organized. I, I wake up with set intentions every day, things that I'm using to expand my intelligence, to feed myself with knowledge. Um, and for me, that also facilitates my breath work. It helps me with the intention and the connection of what I'm putting into my breath. Um, 
you know, like we've all had this experience in Hawaii, the three of us, and that coming together and putting our foreheads and our nose together and breathing, taking breath together, that really helped me in my breath work because it imbued every breath with a, an attention to intention. And for me, that is like maybe the most powerful part of breath work, of conscious breath work, is the intention. I'm a firm believer that the way that we experience manifestation comes from a process or a three-component system of purpose, process, and then product. The sensation, the relief, the, the regulation is the product. And that is not something that is always manufactured or formed or built in the same way. It's not going to manifest. It's not going to look the same every time. The process, the breath work, that's consistent. Now, what changes the product is the intention. Because the process is consistent, the product is different, and the intention or the purpose is different. When I'm able to empower my process with an aligned purpose, I get a more structured and organized product. So that's what's taking my breath work to another level, is really adding a full comprehensive intention. Having that intention in my body, having that intention in my thinking, and really having that intention energetically, bringing that, the sensation of that. If I see peace, then I am going to imagine the most peaceful, serene environment around me or the time that I embody peace or serenity the most. And I'm going to try to bring that into that breath work. For me, that attention is so vital. Um, yoga definitely does help. I do a 26 and 2. I learned it or I began that process of education with um, Magnolia Yoga Studio out in New Orleans. It's run by Sister Adrian Jackson. Ajax is a queen and a god. She is an amazing woman. First Black-owned yoga studio in all of Louisiana, right on Basin Street, right in the heart of New Orleans, servicing our BIPOC community, like right in the heart of the center. And her work is phenomenal. And it created so much more uh, capacity for me to breathe. And also the discipline to sit in space and time to give myself that allowance. So yoga definitely helped with that. You know, it's an, an education of the body for what you're doing with the mind. And I think that's, you know, really important. Um, the other thing that has really helped with breath work is prayer. I've been on this journey of helping Christian practitioners find the relationship in their dogma and in their rhetoric of where ancestral, you know, reverence is not only mentioned, but is also encouraged in the practice in the philosophy and in the dogma itself. And it brought me a lot into these prayers that have been passed down for millennia and the traditional ones to, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, you know, that one. These affirmations, these use of our breath in a particular pattern are also patterns of breath work, you know? And so when I would sit there and get into this sacred mindset, to pray, right? Because we do that. Anytime we have the idea of prayer or even meditation, 
we bring ourselves into this like sense of sacredness where we separate ourselves from the rest of the world, from the rest of the limiting, you know, contrasting experiences. And we say, we're going to focus our attention here. And so prayer really helped me because it was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. Actually, every breath, every time I'm having conversation is an opportunity for this sacred act of, of life giving, right? Because that's what breath work is, is the process, the work of life. You know, every time we breathe as humans, it's life. And so that's what I'm working. And so prayer, you know, really helped me uh, really focusing and learning how to embody my intentions and purpose and practice, practice, practice. Nothing beats power in the practice wisdom of the word. Yeah, that would be my responses. Thank you, MT. I think it was really interesting what you said about intention as well, because... Sorry, Aliyah's running in the background. <laughs> um, because <laughs> even with like my daily yoga practice, and if I set an intention, it's so miraculous to me how it follows me through the day. And I realize, wow, that's the one intention I actually needed today. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Isn't that powerful, though, sis? Like the power of our mind to manifest the energy that we're going to live with. And it's something that I have to practice every day, you know, and, you know, I, I find it really funny when people run into spiritualists and they think that we're supposed to be like inhuman gurus, you know, like you're just supposed to not have to deal with life. And I'm like, no, the only thing that makes you like a teacher is that you've been doing it consistently and you're just convinced that it won't fail you, you know? And so no matter what, you know, I've gone through divorce, I've gone through hardship, I've gone through, you know, being broke and being struggle. I've gone through all those things like all of us, right? And I have to exercise it. I have to come in with that intention. I have to make that choice every day. I wake up sometimes and I'm, like my brother said, the emails are on the mind. Or, you know, sometimes I just wake up and I feel this energy of being sad or being like low energy, not having the energy to get up with the vibrance and vitality that I need. And I just have to sit there and say, oh, no. That's not what I intend today. I have the power to like choose what I'm going to feel, what I'm going to do. And the only thing that I have to do really is be consistent. Know that I'm going to experience different things. Consistency doesn't mean continued experience. It means that it keeps happening over and over. So me going into states of peace and states of empowerment, it just needs to happen over and over. It doesn't need to maintain itself. I just need to maintain my power to practice, you know? So that is just so powerful to me. I think we humans are so phenomenal. I love Sadhguru when he says that, like, forget about being superhuman. Being human is super, yo. Like, it's so fire. We can just, like, wake up and say, you know what? I deserve peace today. And we can orchestrate peace in our lives. So thank you for bringing up that, that point. I really love it. Thanks, sis. Yeah, and that's quite the power, right? To be able to control how you feel, control your own environment, your own um, everything around you. You have control. Yeah. Um, Thanks, right, Alicia. Wanna... Oh, do you want me to jump into the questions or keep going? Go ahead. Um, let's see. We have, do you think that breath work can help with panic attacks over time? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, one, I find that is immediately, like, I don't know about your training, 
But all of my training dealing with trauma, even just like in the military, when you're dealing with physical trauma, people are in states of shock, right? That's what happens in those moments. Breath work is the fundamental tool. You know, like <laughs> that's what we tell you. You're in a state of shock. You're in a state of panic. Breath work is the way to regulate the system, right? So not only is it good for long-term, but immediate use is necessary. Um, now for the long-term, I think the practice of breath work, when you align it with intention, because it has to integrate into the psychology. And this is like something that I'm grateful for our traditional practices, where when you went to your elders, you went to a doctor, psychologist, sociologist, like that's what they were there and focused on. So everything that you came up with physically was also mirrored psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually, energetically. And so when we can take these things into account, I think over time, we have to add new intentions and purpose and education to help rewrite the pattern of trauma response. And then hopefully produce a narrative of not trauma-informed response, but really, like my brother said, liberty, really like responding to a life experience or to a generation of life, a cultivation of life of creation, rather than responding to the trauma. Because a trauma response still requires a traumatic, you know, energy to come back. But if I know how to regulate myself, if I can really like, begin to educate my system, begin a, a reprogramming, then when that contrast comes into my life, now I, instead of triggering a response to the trauma, I can actually trigger a response to my triumph because I've worked it and I practice it. And so now instead of trying to get out of my problem, I'm just getting to my, my solution. And that switch for me is what provides a more, a healthier, more sustainable, and also like, a, a more organic healing process. I think breath work alone is great for the nervous system itself. Without intention, without some real awareness and connection to the person and them doing the inner work to make that decision, to change that decision, I think we won't have the relief that we're looking for. So I think we do need to extend and expand our um our capacity to share what is useful and helpful. You know, sometimes we just need to encourage people that, um, you know, that they can really do it. I don't know, like to me, that's the biggest one. You just have to add a little bit of intention and get that, that positive reinforcement in their system. And when they do it, we can start to rewrite the narrative. Let us know what you think about that. Yeah, that was uh, pretty great. And I actually have personal experience with that. My son has such extreme anxiety and panic attacks when it comes to basketball. He loves the sport, but if he has a game, he can't handle it. And so a few months ago, he had a tournament in Anchorage, and um, I turned on a guided meditation in the hotel room, and I was like, Braylon, we're just going to try this. And he was super receptive to it. We've done it a few times since. He hasn't had many basketball games. And then about three weeks ago, he had a um, scheduled scrimmage in the same – feelings and thoughts of anxiety and that he can't do it hit him. And so he wasn't able to perform in the scrimmage. And so we came home and without me asking, he asked to do a guided meditation in his room with the door shut. And so it really is about like intention and educating your system. And, you know, he took it upon himself to ask me for that. So um, it's doable. He's 11. 
Well, like one, I just want to take a moment to like give you some flowers, sis. Like <laughs> fantastic parenting, like amazing way to like use the tools that you've learned and that you're using in your life and giving them to your children at a young age. You know, I wish that I knew with the guided intention what it would facilitate. You know, that added intention does, you know, it informs the way we learn. Like when I was in school, I went to some school programs where the environment was very, um, they told us the why, right? Why I was learning something. And that made it so much easier for me to accept it and to use it because I had a function for it. I knew its place, you know? And so that, that educated to me to use that information in a particular way that was creative or beneficial for me. And so when we like, educate our children and our people around us, our clients, that this is a productive tool, that this is a way for you to move into this creative space for yourself. It also empowers and programs the response to be a positive, creative one. You know, so when you sat there and said, hey, son, here's this thing. This is going to move you into a space of peace, move you into a space where you can now deal with this thing. And then he experienced it and he goes, oh, I know what to use. I know the tool. I know exactly what to do when I feel this situation to move into another space. My mom told me I can use this tool. And he went and used the tool because it was properly, you know, aligned for him to use and a function that was just like really amazing. So thank you for being a great mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm just appreciative that he's receptive to it, but, um, yeah, the follow-up to that question in the chat. She said, yes, I see what you mean. Very cool. I just have to, I just have never put intention to it. Maybe that needs to be the change then. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bless, bless. I can't wait. I know it, it, I know it's going to change. That's the best part is everything we talked about is flawless. Like you can do it and it's going to work. You add some intentions, sis, it's going to be so much better. You're going to sit there and be like, this is the best breath I've ever taken in my life. It's going to be so great. Like, send us a message. Let us know how great your breath work was when you did it. I can't wait to hear. Awesome. Uh, looks like we have one more question in the chat, Christian, uh, from Deb. Why do you think people perceive breath work as difficult? I encounter many people who have a negative mindset on trying it. It's hard. <laughs> you know, it's not easy to change the way that you function. And it's really just opening yourself up. A lot of us, I know when I started using it in my adulthood, I knew it worked and it still was hard because I just had to change my mode of operation. I had to change my MO. And that meant that I had to recognize that my, my operating system needed an update, you know? It's like sitting around with an iPhone and you still got like an operating system from, you know, the early 2000s. If you want to like be relevant and present, you're going to need an update. And so a lot of us are reluctant to updating. We don't want to lose the, the familiarity. And when you start a new process, it can be scary, especially when it's talking about your emotional and mental states. We tend to get very 
protective, you know, of how we think and how we feel. And anytime something can change that, our systems naturally are going to say, hey, be careful. You know, anytime there's an adjustment to it from the outside or from some type of mechanism, you know, it's a natural reaction to say, hey, something's changing. I need to be a little bit more weary. I need to be a little bit more attentive. I need to figure this out. And so I just tell people that it's normal, you know, and that it's all right. And again, I remind them that they're already doing it. They're already experts at it and that it's okay. And, you know, in my human experience, I'm learning as I get closer and closer to 40. People just need permission, man. You know, they just need permission to to try. They need permission to try without any expectation of success. And when you remove what success looks like, then it's so much easier. When success is just them wanting, having the desire, having even the remote openness to do so, it's far easier to empower them to take the step of action. Um, so, you know, that's really what I encourage. And, you know, it's hard because it's hard. And we know that it's hard because you got to sit there and you can't do anything else but focus on your breath and pay attention to yourself. And I don't know about y'all, but in this modern age, sitting down by yourself and paying attention to yourself and giving yourself real loving kindness, attention with, with purpose, you know, it's a fleeting thing. And so I think it's a challenge. And I think the only thing that we can do as a community is encourage and create more space for it to be normalized, you know? And I do that by doing it in the middle of a conversation. I do it at dinner, you know? I'm talking with my mom and she brings up something that triggers something emotionally in me. And I'll say, hold on, mom. And I'll just close my eyes and do my breath work. And if anybody else thinks I'm weird, guess what? They got their own piece to worry about. I need to maintain mine because I want to be present and empowered to respond and create the reality that I desire and not respond to my circumstances. So I try to just encourage people in that way. And I hope it helps you encourage other people to do the same. I think it's very telling what you said, though, you know, that like people might be bothered or think that you're weird for practicing breathing. Like we're talking about breathing, the very core thing to life that none of us can move forward for even a few minutes without. Um, and I think to, just to add some more to this, I think, you know, it's the state of our culture in the present, in the present day, um, breathing, like I said, the most central force, something that we should probably be aware of and take seriously. Right. I mean, it's the it's central force to our life and existence, every creatures. Um, but yet we live in a society where we're so two sides to this one, we're so distracted that we're paying attention to all these other things. Like you go anywhere, the TV's on inundated with commercials, people talking, people jabbering away, social media, your cell phones, you know, like even me, like I've tried to, you know, ditch this, um, this, uh, addiction to my cell phone and it like plagues me, you know, like I'll be reaching for it in my back pocket. And like, when I set it, I'll put it away somewhere and I'll be talking to my kids and it'll be in my mind. I think I got to go get it. Um, but all these distractions, but then the other side of it, you know, um, we're very comfortable with what's familiar for us, but that's part of the problem, right? You're familiar. If, you, if the TV is always on, you're familiar with what's playing on the, t with the commercials on the TV. You're not familiar with breath work because we don't talk 
talk about it too much. We're, we're moving in that direction as a society. It's becoming more and more, you know, virtuous and, and useful to practice such things and, and well-known. But it's also, you know, like talking about um, being uncomfortable or whatever, like people might, I shouldn't say people might, there are definitely people that are afraid to do things like that because they think that everyone else is going to think they're weird, like you said. And so they have that fear. But think, but like, I like what you said about it. If somebody thinks you're weird for breathing or for paying attention to your breathing or for, you know, manipulating your breathing for what works for you, that's on them. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous when you think about it. Um, there's plenty of things that are normalized in our society that are actually should be weird and they're not. Um, and so, yeah, I think that just our, we have to be aware of our current situation in society and the distractions and the things that are there and the things that prevent us from being who we truly are, which to be who you truly are, you got to be able to breathe and you got to, to be a part of that. Yeah. A conscious yeah. part of that. You know, one thing that I've learned studying anything about human history is that humans are empowered to change. Like, no matter what situation, circumstance we find, we create fundamental change in every environment we go to. And we create beautiful things with that change, phenomenal things. And it's just a part of who we are. You know, one of my favorite numbers is five, right? I love it because it was like one of the first things I could draw was a star. I liked them, you know. But a long time ago when I was really young, um, I heard that the number five was the number for humanity because the number five is the number that's associated with love and with change. We have two arms, two legs, and a head. These are the five extensions outside of our major body, the trunk of our body. And so it's like we've been given a natural inclination to be transformers, to be transmuters of energy and experience into new things. Change is a fundamental part of who we are. This is why we experience time in this past, present, and future experience all at the same time. Like my present is an experience of what I had before, what I'm going to in the future, and what I'm doing right now. And that's a fundamental part of our experience. It's like, you know, I feel like it's just so empowering to be a human being. We really are just wired to change our circumstance. And if any, like if I could like empower any of us today, it's that, whether it's breath work, whether it's working in our society, whether it's working in our families, working within the family and community of yourself, you are a human being that's fully empowered by their will. And if you just need a little bit of space to make that choice for yourself, I invite you just to take a breath because you are absolutely empowered to do that as a human being. It's your birthright. And I think the more of us that do it, the greater the potentials and possibilities for creative, integrative, sustainable living is going to be a part of our experience. And I think it's happening. I think we're moving in that direction. So I just want to encourage us all to keep that vibration and that intention in every breath that we take. Yeah, MT. It's been a pleasure to have you on the, the podcast. We're uh, running out of time. Um, oh, man. Thank you so much. It's been a blessing, bro. No, it's, it's been a pleasure. And I think, you know, these, like, 
the things that we're talking about are still kind of foreign territory for a lot of us and for many of us. And so just bringing this out there and putting it out there for everyone. Um, I really appreciate it. I think that uh, it's a very successful episode. Um, Lee, you have any last words? I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing that with us and doing a live demonstration with us. Um, you know, kind of like we, you guys touched on earlier about it, just bringing comprehensive attention to your day daily routine and kind of sets the tone for the day. So set the tone for my day. So I appreciate you. Well, before I go, I just want to say thank, like thanks and praise to all of our ancestors from time immemorial. I just want to thank them because none of us would be here to share the intelligence that they've given us to share these beautiful bodies and environments that they've given us that they taught us how to preserve. So I just, thanks to our ancestors. Thanks to all of our elders. I know my brother Ace has a phenomenal circle of people that's taught him in his life. I know you as well. And, and for me, I give thanks to all my elders, to my mother, to my father, to my godmother Ife, uh, to my Ajibona, to my godfathers, uh, um, Padrino Willie and Baba Ife Lade. I really just give honor to where honor is due because I have no space in this time without them. And I am so grateful. And I'm grateful for all of your ancestors because we're all here today getting to share this beautiful wisdom and knowledge. So thank you, Brother Ace. Thank you for your grace and the honor of speaking with you all today. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for blessing us with your presence, your knowledge, your wisdom. And um, look forward to the next time uh, I see you. And hopefully maybe we'll have you on the podcast again in the future for a follow-up. I also want to thank you. Yeah. And uh, I also want to thank Lee uh, for uh, for all your contributions, for the good questions, for helping me out with this. I want to thank all our listeners, uh, Alicia, for calling in. We had some good questions from Alexis. And thanks, Doreen. Thanks, Deb. Um, is that everybody that asked questions? So, um, so yeah, big thank you to everyone. And uh, if you have a story to tell and you're interested in being on the podcast, being a guest, then make sure you please reach out to me at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. And uh, you can find episodes right here on the call-in app. We, we are live every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. But we are also, uh, after they're finished the day after the podcast, they're all available both on Spotify and Apple. So go check us out and give us a follow on there. Next Saturday, we have another very important and special guest. It's uh, Dr. Diane McCachron. She is a scholar. She works, I think, officially she would work for the University of Alaska Fairbanks, but at the Kuskokwim campus out of Bethel. And she uh, is the director, I'm not actually sure if that's the title, but the director um, of the Rural Human Services Program, which I went through way back in the days. And so uh, we're very excited to have her on. Uh, we'll be here next week, 10 a.m., um, and I guess that's it. If you have any questions or anything or any comments about the show, be sure to give us feedback and reach out. So, all right, folks, until next time, that's it. Peace. Peace. Thank you. All. Social worker. Good... Oh. Sorry. Sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, I just wanted to say thank y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah. See you, buddy. Bye now. Critical, Critical social, social worker. worker.
is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. This episode was hosted by Christian Stetler and Lee Smith. to the critical social worker a revolutionary storytelling podcast your story my story our story peace